have always seen myself as a writer. My husband's a writer. I always thought I had a talent in writing and with words. And I thought this is the time to really put my talent to work, to not only advocate for AAPI runners, but also for all runners of color and those who do not see themselves as runners to make running a more welcoming and inclusive space. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is Jingwan Lu Tervalon. Jingwan is a mother and a runner from Southern California. She started running 14 years ago to deal with heartache and to do something for herself before she eventually found a community that she connected with and started training in earnest for races. She's also a writer whose work has been published in Runner's World and Women's Running. In fact, last year she won a creative grant through the Brooks Runfulness Project to create a multimedia book project that showcases runners from the Asian American Pacific Islander community. She also serves on the board of Bras for Girls and is an advocate for creating social change through running. Jingwan is someone I've corresponded with over email for a few years now, and in this conversation, I got to learn more about her journey as a runner and her work as a writer and an advocate. We also talked about identity, the role and importance of community, using her voice to tell stories and generate awareness, and a lot more. Before we dive in, a big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're looking for a workhorse to run most of your miles in, look no further than the Fresh Foam X 1080 V12. Just came out. Man, am I stoked for this shoe. Longtime listeners will know that the 1080 has been my go-to training shoe for the past few years, and the V12 will no doubt be the shoe that I put most of my miles on for the rest of the year. The 1080 V12 has the perfect blend of cushioning and responsiveness. It's lightweight. It transitions smoothly. It has the most streamlined fit to accommodate a wide variety of foot types, and it holds up to heavy mileage week in and week out. The Fresh Foam X 1080 V12 is available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your local run specialty retail store. Check them out and give them a try today. Also, thank you to the Wineshine Half Marathon and 3.9 Miler, organized by the nonprofit Napa Valley Marathon and Half Marathon, for supporting the show this week. The inaugural race, which starts and finishes at the Silverado Resort and Spa in Napa, will be held on July 16th, 2022. If you've never been to Napa, let me tell you, this is a great excuse to go. You'll get cool mornings, great running conditions, and incredibly beautiful scenery. It's only about 25 minutes up the road from where I live, and I can vouch that it will be an experience like no other. After the race, you'll have the chance to sample some of the area's best varietals at the post-race festival. Registration is now open at winesheinhalfmarathon.com. Org. Also, your registration fee goes to a great cause as proceeds from the Wineshine Half Marathon and 3.9 Miler support Napa Firewise and the Napa Valley Farmworker Foundation. Enter the code MARIO, that's my name, all caps, M-A-R-I-O, when you check out for $15 off of your registration. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, please enjoy my uninterrupted conversation with the amazing Jingwan Lu Turvalon. I'm excited to talk to you. As I was just saying to you before we got on the mics here, we've been emailing each other back and forth for a few years now, I think all the way back to 2018 about a a wide variety of topics. And since then, I've gotten to know you mostly through your writing. Um, You've done some writing for women's running, for Runner's World. You have other projects that you're working on, which we'll get into over the, the course of this conversation. But it's a real pleasure to finally be talking to you and get to learn more about you. Same here, Mario. Thank you for having me on. I've been a huge fan. Since the day you launched the podcast, I've been listening to every single episode. I know last year you reached that 2 million download benchmark, and it's a huge, huge achievement. So congratulations. And I'm still continuing to support that. And um, to all the other fans out there, join the Patreon page. It's a, it's a great way to support Mario's great work. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that plug. Um, but tell me more about yourself. I know you're based in Southern California. You mm-hmm. describe yourself as a mother runner from Southern California. Give me, give me more. Who is Xingwan? Yes. So yes, I am a mother runner. I am based in Tongvaland, so the Los Angeles area. And I've been a runner for about 14 years, have been training for the last six plus years. And I've been part of uh, several running groups. So the Pasadena Pacers was my original club. I have been training with my coach, Coach Armand Crespo at FACT training for the last six years. And um, I have been leading Wazel Volley's local chapter for about a year. Um, and I write. I write about running. I write about people's experiences. I write about BIPOC runners, especially AAPI runners. My day job, I work at the Coca-Cola company. I'm a marketing insights professional. And I'm, I'm a wife. Um, uh, my husband has been a critical part of my running journey. You wear many, many hats. Let's start with the running side of things. One thing that was really interesting to me uh, from what you just said is that you've been running for 14 years, but you've been training for six and a half. And there's a very um, marked distinction there. So let's go back 14 years. What was your introduction to running? How did you get into it? Um, so I'll give you the short version first and we'll go with the long version. I got into it to get over a heartbreak and to get in shape. I started running after I had my first uh baby and Sam and my son. And I started running as a way to essentially heal a heartbreak because uh, his father left us. And um, the and then back then it was more, I just need to move my body to feel better. And I started running, just jogging along um, in Redondo Beach. And I think your, your friend Billy Young lives there right now. And there's a paved beach strand where you can just go i just go there log a couple miles and i would feel a lot better um the longer story is that you know i grew up in china i'm an immigrant um i was born in 1982 one of the um in the forefront of the um the single family policy actually 
Uh, I am not a single child. I'm eight years older than my brother. Um, growing up, I would say I was very sheltered. Um, we never had a whole lot of money, but back then everyone was not well off. And I still had a fairly sheltered life, even though we didn't have much. When your neighbors don't have much, you don't feel poor. And at school, everything was to prepare you for that college entrance examination. And in primary school and middle school, I was in swimming. I was quite a competitive swimmer. But then as I got older, my parents pulled me out of swimming and said, you're going to focus on school and do as well as you can. And I never thought I would end up being a runner. I never thought I would lose a sheltered life. Um, I decided to immigrate to the U.S. after college, and I knew I was going to head into difficult times, And uh, but the hardship was not expected. And I had to quickly become very resourceful going through single motherhood, and running was my way of coping. Running gave me a lot of confidence that I am resilient. I can deal with a lot of hard things. And that's how I started. What was the spark for running in particular, though, where you're like, all right, I need to do something for myself, for my health to get over this heartbreak. I'm going to put on a pair of shoes and go out to that path and just go run for a little while rather than maybe getting back into the pool or jumping into the ocean to go swimming where you had a little bit of a background there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was just how accessible it was. Rennie was so accessible and, you know, simply lacing up shoes and just go. And I did think about swimming. It was just too much work, too much mm -hmm. planning to go. You know, I could not afford a babysitter. Um, so logistically, it was a lot more challenging and running was the most accessible thing that allowed me to move my body to start feeling I have somewhat control of my life. That's how I started running. Yeah. Were you doing it all on your own initially? Yes. Yes, I was. Um, I had friends who ran the same route and, you know, made a couple friends, but I wasn't part of running club. Did you have any idea at that time that there was a such thing as running clubs, as a running community, no. as these races that no. you know you could train for, or was it just something for you to to do for yourself, and that was it? It was just something for me to do for myself. It was my way of self care. That by that time, it wasn't you know there was no such a term as self care. I just went ahead and did it. Um, have no idea how big and tight knit the running community is, and even to this day, my husband's like, "You guys are like wolf packs. You never leave anyone behind. You're so <laughs> tight. You're you're always in battle together. Um, it's yeah, it's uh, to an outsider. It's almost hard to understand that intimacy and that bond that we have as runners to each other. How did running make you feel? initially when you started doing it with some regularity? Was it almost this instant thing where you felt better right away after that first run? Or did you have to convince yourself to, you know, keep getting out there to maybe run a little bit further, run a little bit faster? Like, help me to better understand that. Mm -hmm. I did not have a goal. I just 
got out there, run a couple miles each time. I think five or six was probably the longest I ran. And um, I probably did three, four times a week. Um, it was not consistent. It did not have any structure. I did not know things like, you know, aerobic energy system, anaerobic energy system, none of that. Uh, it was simply, I just need to move and start to feel better. And when you first start running, um, I think you get that runner's high easily, right? Because you're not super fit. You get that high almost instantly uh, as soon as you're done. Um, I think that was one way of me coping. I did seek therapy at the time that helped as well. But running was the most immediate remedy. Did you start to think about eventually challenging yourself a little bit more with it? Or was it just routine for you? Like, I'm going to go out and run my, you know, handful of miles here. Uh, maybe I'll run a few more here and there, but I'm not really thinking of challenging myself with running. It's just going to be, you know, part of my day or part of my week because I need it for myself. Yeah, it was just a routine. And it wasn't a well-established routine. <laughs> now I look at look back in those days I'm like uh, I just to me the the me back then was not quote-unquote a serious or dedicated runner running was just mm -hmm. a way of me coping with difficult emotions and life challenges now there's a lot more structure there's goals and I never thought it would be this way I almost like got sucked into it <laughs> When did you start taking more of an interest in it where you started to look outside of it just being something you did for yourself and maybe you started to either look at running with other people or picked mm -hmm. up a running magazine or started reading stories about running on the internet? Like what was that next mm -hmm. step for you? Yeah. So in 2012 to 2014, I actually lived in China for two years. I continued to run, but interestingly, I became part of a running community there. Um, surprisingly, the running community there was composed largely of expats. So people who are Americans, British, Italians, um, they're there to work. And because I made a couple friends, they pulled me into a running club. It's called Shanghai, Shanghai Runners High. And they had small races, trail races, it was a lot of fun. And then it became more of a socializing um, thing for me. Um, after I moved back to the LA area in 2014, I joined a club called the Pasadena Pacers. That's when my running life just changed. I heard about BQ. Everyone was chasing that Boston qualifying time. So I was like, oh, I have to put that on my list. Um, I got my Boston qualifying time 11 months after I had my second, uh, my daughter Colette. And that's still one of my biggest running accomplishments. And I ran the Boston Marathon in 2018 that year with the horrible weather with Des Linden run and won the race um, and started having bigger goals. Um, I'm still chasing a lot of running goals, but I think joining the Pasadena Pacers, being around a lot of competitive runners and being around people who are very goal-driven, very much about self-improvement, about performance. That was the, the impetus for my change as well. 
what was the first race that you ever ran? And I have a follow-up question to this too. Mm -hmm. So I'll let you take that one first. Oh gosh, that's a great question. I don't even remember. Was it when I you were in think... China? Because you had mentioned how they, you had, the group that you had found there had done mm -hmm. some like, trail races and other mm -hmm. stuff. So I think the first race was a half marathon, the Shanghai half marathon. At that time, and that at that time they did ha they'd had a full and a half at the same time, and I registered actually for a full marathon. And last minute, I was told the slots were full. Would you consider doing a half marathon? And I was like, yes, <laughs> which is pretty ridiculous. Much more appealing. <laughs> but I do remember at the very end. I was running with a older gentleman who's gotta be in his seventies, and he was kicking my butt, and thinking, "Why am I here? Why do I run so slow?" <laughs> that someone who's a lot older than me is ahead of me and kicking my butt the last couple of miles. I think now that thinking back, that's my first race, and. Um, after I moved back, I think I started doing a little bit more 5Ks and then 10K and then gradually moved up in the distance. And because everyone was chasing that BQ, I started chasing that BQ as well. My follow-up question to that was, what is the first race that you ever trained for? Um, the first race I ever trained for was CIM in 2016. So, and was that with the idea of, of getting that? BQ that you had become enamored with? Yes, yes. So um, my husband and I, we had our daughter Colette uh, in January 2016. And I am this the type of mom, I guess, I did not enjoy being pregnant because uh, I couldn't do a lot of things I was used to doing. And people started treating me a little differently. They're kinder, gentler, but also a little fearful around you, especially in the last couple months. And I was dying to get back to running. Um, I had known this coach, Coach Armand, um, prior to um, being pregnant with Colette. And he and I stayed in touch. I know he's helped many, many of my friends BQ, get their BQ. Um, so a week after I had Colette, I went to see Coach Armand. I did a time trial on the track with him. And I remember the time. It was 8.59. I ran as hard as I could for a one week mile. after for a mile. 8.59. I remember the time. Just under nine minutes. And none of my running shirts fit. Um, then I started getting back in shape. It took me about three months to just get back in shape. And by December that year, I had run... CIM, I run 3.30 to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And I could not believe it. I could not believe. I know a lot of people spend a lot of years chasing that BQ. I felt very lucky that I got it my first try. What changed for you in 2016 after you gave birth to your daughter, started working with Coach Armand, ran that one-mile time trial, did everything you could just to get under nine minutes and then in less than a year i mean you're a boston qualifier averaging 330 is what eight minutes a mile or so just uh, about just a little under. over a little over eight minutes a mile i think yeah Still, around eight, um, yeah 
pretty phenomenal considering, you know, where where you started from. Did did something flip for you during that time? Um I think I was I was fast uh just prior to having Colette. Um fast, I mean it's all relative, right? Um I was running nine minute a mile for a long time. That never felt hard. And with training, I think because your legs are so fresh, so new, a little bit of stimulus would go a long way. So I think my body was probably a lot more adaptable than now. Not to say it's not adaptable now, but I would need a lot more stimulus, a different stimulus to have a big jump like that. Um, but I do think working with coach Armand, being with a group of people who want similar things, uh, that made the world a difference. And I have to give a shout out to this group of people. Um, in the Pasadena Pacers, they have all kinds of different pace groups. Our pace group is called the 20 mile challenge group. And when I first joined in 2014, there were about four to five people that go to Boston every year and they talk about Boston. Everyone look at them like in awe. And then a bunch of us started training with Coach Armand and then the floodgate just opened. Uh, I think last couple of years we had 40, 50 people qualifying Whoa. for Boston. Yeah. It's incredible. How did your relationship with running change at that time in particular? Because you had mentioned how when you got into it, it was just for you. It was a way to cope with heartbreak, a way to do something healthy for yourself. I mean, you had just described how, I mean, you you couldn't like wait to start running again after mm -hmm. having your daughter. And then you set this goal of a Boston qualifier because it was like the thing to do yeah. within within <laughs> your group. And that's very different from how you started. So talk to me about that, that evolution and what it was like. I think it's more the confidence I've gained over the years, um, knowing that if I set a goal, because I'm among people who also set similar goals and they've achieved it, I can do that too. I know it's hard to put in the training day in and day out, but when you're around people who really inspire you and ground you at the same time, it becomes, it feels a lot easier, right? It feels a lot easier. 5 a.m., I have to get up and do a workout and go through the day just as anyone with a full-time job, you know, knowing that I have a bunch of friends who are also doing this, who have similar lifestyle, that makes all the difference. I think confidence is one and the community is another thing. And just so much inspiration in the Pasadena running community. Um, we have people who in their 60s, 70s, still running incredible time. We have people in their 40s still having 5K PRs. Um, it's a very, very inspiring community. What did finding that community do for you specifically to feel a part of something bigger than just yourself? Yeah, it's a sense of belonging. It's a sense of belonging, a sense of safety. It's a sense of I'm here with my people. Um, 
I think, you know, a lot of the leadership books that you read, I, at least I read, is around how you can find and build that. I feel like while I stumbled on it, um, I think I was at the Rose Bowl for something and my husband and I run into like a Pasadena Pacers booth and they were recruiting new members. And I was like, oh, I'll join because I run. And later my husband was like, you don't know any of these people. How do you know they're going to embrace you and you, you're just gonna run with them? I was like, yes. And then a couple of years later, these are my closest friends and they still are my closest friends. Um, I think finding that community makes you truly feel that you're part of something bigger. That when you, like when I get injured, obviously a lot of us, right? Like when we get injured, we get depressed. But friends would text me and ask me, how are you feeling? How are you recovering? That just is a reminder, right? That you're a part of a community that's a lot bigger than you. That the hard things that you do, you're never alone because there are the people doing similar hard things. Isn't that one of the craziest but also most awesome things about the running community is that in your case, you go to this booth for the Pasadena Pacers and you're like, I'm going to join this club. And you don't know anyone in the club, but you knew before even joining that they were going to embrace you. And in my experience, having been around running for as long as I have and having lived in different areas of the country, mm -hmm. and I'd love to get your take on this too, because maybe mine as a white man is very, very different, but I, I've never felt like I didn't belong anywhere that I've, I've ever gone. Um, that if I mm -hmm. found a group of, of runners, no matter how fast they were, um, the color of their skin, what city we were in, like I, I knew that I had something in common with them mm -hmm. and that they would welcome me. And that even if I, you know, we didn't talk about any other aspects of our life, like we have that same shared bond of, of running. And I felt like I could belong to that group and be a part of it and just feel very at home, no matter where I was. Completely, completely. I feel like running is has also become my love language. Um, mm -hmm. If I'm talking to friends, right, I would start with, have you run today? How far did you run? How How's this old injury? Is it bothering you? What's your next race? Do you want to go for a run when you feel bad? Do you want to come out for a workout together? It's my love language. What shoes are you wearing? What, uh, what's the new gadget on your wrist? <laughs> what's this t-shirt that you're wearing? <laughs> what's this bra that you're wearing? <laughs> it is completely my love language. Yeah, I, I feel like it, it's just a common language. And I mean, I can even say beyond this country, like I've been to other parts of the world as well. And I, I literally don't speak their their language, but we speak the language of, of running. And yes. I feel I feel welcomed and I feel like, you know, these are my people and it doesn't matter, you know, where we are. And, and to me, that's just one of the most beautiful aspects of this greater community that we call running. And I know like within our individual communities, there can certainly be, you know, differences or, um, you know, there's a, you know, different vibe to it or, or whatever. But I think like, you know, overall, like this, this global community, I've just found it to be, you know, very, very 
welcoming and you know i i hope as well that more people can get that message who don't feel like they they belong they just have to you know get into it um yeah. in some way completely and i think you know back to your comment as a white man right you you feel mm -hmm. welcome at any space um i know i i look like a runner i am relatively thin um you know i am always wearing shorts so you can tell by the leg, leg muscle i'm a runner and then there are runners who don't have that typical runner's body and I get their concerns, I get their worries. Because when I first had Colette, I don't think I looked at a runner. I don't think I moved like a runner because I was so overweight at that time. Um, so it is a little bit both, right? It's an open and welcoming space. And for people like us who you know, they would see us as runners, there's no question about it, right? We would feel and because we're we've been at it for so long we feel comfortable and welcome at any running space and i would say there are others who are possibly not feeling the same right mm -hmm. they might be they might have a bigger size they might not run it fast and at groups runs they're always terrified of being left behind um, so I try to remind myself, right, not everyone feels the same way and we should make this space a lot more inclusive and accessible. Like it's been for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And I've seen this in just different places that I've been in areas that I've worked. When I worked in Run Specialty, I would have people come into the store all the time and they would say, I'm not really a runner. And yes. their misconceptions were everything from running stores are for serious runners. And yes. because I don't consider myself a serious runner, I don't think I belong here. And you almost have to convince them that, hey, this actually is a space for anyone who puts one foot in front of the other in a meaningful way. Like you're as much of a runner as, as anyone else. Or they say, I'm not really a runner because I don't run marathons. I only do 5Ks. <laughs> like, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure right, you just told exactly. me that you run 5Ks. That makes you a runner. And I see this in the Wednesday night group I coach in San Francisco that I've coached for the last seven years. It's a huge group. I mean, any given Wednesday night, we'll have 60 to 70 people there. And it's all ages, races, size, shapes, speeds. And when people come for the first time, they, they'll do exactly that. They'll look around and say, I, if it's body type or something, they'll say, I, I don't know that I, I belong here. And I have to tell them, I'm like, the fact that you're here, that you've got shoes on your feet and that you're willing to try just as hard as the next person here makes you every bit of a runner as as them. And I can promise you that if you keep coming consistently, one, you're going to feel welcome here because everyone here, as we talked about, speaks the same language. Two, as we know, just as runners, consistency compounds. So the more frequently that you show up here, um, the better that you're going to, to get at this thing. And also, I think the more that you show up to these places, the more you're going to feel like you belong, even if, you know, you'd you look differently than someone else or you know you come from a, a a different background but i think that that first step is often the hardest is yes. just getting people in the door and feeling like hey there's a space for you here and you you are going to feel welcome or you should feel welcome regardless of your goals your size your shape your age your race your language etc and so on and so forth yes i would add on to that that 
now that I feel a lot more experienced and established in, in the running community, I, I do feel like I have the responsibility to make sure other people feel the same way. I remember it took me years to embrace runner as part of my identity. And then when I started running with Coach Armand, he would refer to us as, oh, she's my athlete or he's my athlete. Really? I was like, oh, me, I'm an athlete. <laughs> It also took me a couple more years to embrace, okay, I am an athlete. I move my body. I have to work on strength, mobility, all the accessory things to make sure I can run healthy. Yes, I'm an athlete. So I think it's, you know, people in the space also intentionally pulling you in and making you feel that you belong. Talk to me a bit about the identity piece for you. When was it as best as you can remember that you first began to identify as a runner and or athlete? Mm -hmm. I think after I joined the Pasadena Pacers, after I ran a couple of more races, then I started to feel, okay, I can call myself a runner. Um, I think it was based on two things. One is consistency of my running. Two is just performance. Like I'm not back of the pack. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but I realized, oh, actually I can be competitive in my age group. Um, it gives me a little bit more confidence to call myself a runner. I, I held the view that you have to be at a certain level to call yourself a runner. And now I'm like, that is BS. That is BS no performance consistency yeah i think that's the biggest wall that running in general needs to knock down is that there is is no certain point where someone calls himself a runner i mean i think that point is different for everyone and they've got to convince themselves that hey i i am a runner and speaking for myself having you know, been an athlete for a long time myself, having coached, having done the work that I'm doing through this podcast and, and writing is helping people realize that if, you know, if they're a track athlete and they're used to going fast and all they pay attention to is, is the Olympics is like, that is not running in itself. That might be your experience with mm -hmm. running, but it's so much bigger than that. Um, and then also on, on the other side, when I meet newer runners or people who don't have a competitive interest in this sport is helping them to know like there's this whole other side of it too, which you might not want to get into and that's totally fine as well. But you're still all runners and it doesn't have to be about competition. It doesn't have to be about, um, you know, self-transcendence or improving your mental health. Like all of those things are good, but, but running is like this I don't want to call it a amorphous, but it is this like very inclusive space and it can mean different things so to many, different yeah. people. And mm -hmm. it can mean different things to the same people at different points of their life, as you've described in, in this conversation. Like early on for you, it was just this, you know, coping mechanism. It mm -hmm. was just something you were doing for yourself. And I'm I'm I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm sure on on some level it's it's still that to some degree, but it's also become, you know, so much more because you've sort of opened yourself to that possibility. And I just I just think that's that's really beautiful and a and a great example um for people who might be listening to this to just consider for themselves. Yes. So many different reasons, so many different benefits of running. And I think someone, you know, as competitive as you and me, 
to me, my biggest struggle recently that I've become more aware is that I, if I see someone who's super, super talented and they don't put in the work, I get very frustrated. I have to step back and say, not everyone wants the same thing. Not everyone wants to put in 70, 80 miles a week, do three workouts a week, and it's fine. Um, I have to remind myself that you can see all sorts of talents out there, but if they're not in it for performance, they're in it for the social aspect, for community, that's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. It's your own journey and each person owns that journey. Yeah, I mean, you're running can and should be whatever you want it to be for you. And I think if we were looking at other people and that's not what it is for us, like that's okay too. It's just having that respect and that acceptance that it doesn't yes. have to be the same thing for everyone. And just, just understanding that. I feel like if we can do a better job of, of that, um, it can feel more inclusive and it can feel more like a, a greater community despite our differences. Yeah. Yes. Well said, Mario. To take a little bit of a pivot here, I want to talk about your advocacy work, which mm -hmm. has taken a few different shapes. But when did you first start to think of yourself as an advocate within running? I think it also took different uh, phases. Um, I think in the beginning, my advocacy was around how, hey, if you look at the different from a, 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 a having a typical quote unquote runner's body, please still come join us. It was that. It was around, you know, don't see your fitness level as a hurdle. Um, and I learned that from just being pregnant with my second because I gained 55 pounds. And after having her, I lost probably only 15. I had to work to lose some more weight. And I understood how hard it is for a person with a little extra weight on their body to run. So I gained a whole new level of respect. That's when I started focusing on, hey, please come run because you will have unexpected benefits. Um, I think my advocacy took on a new shape and new meaning um, after Armand Arbery's death. It was such a turning point. Um, so my husband is black. He identifies as black. He's, he's from New Orleans. He grew up in LA. And being married to a black man, I tell people, did not automatically turn me into an advocate. Um, it's seeing the death of a fellow runner that just lit a fire in me. Um, so it's interesting because, you know, I, having been an immigrant, uh, having come from China where my ethnicity, I'm Han, uh, my ethnicity is like 95 to 98% of the total population. I never felt, uh, race, ethnicity was a thing. When I first came here, when I first hear talks about racial inequality, I asked them questions like, why is everything about race? Why? Uh, why are we always talking about this? Um, we should be moving past beyond this and, and not everything is about race. I, 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 I was there for a few years. Being married to my husband opened up my eyes to see how 
a, a black person moves the, in the world differently. How their sense of space is different from my sense of space. I remember once we were driving somewhere and he, he was driving and he had to pull over. I said, why are we pulling over? He said, I left my wallet in the trunk. I need to go get it. I said, so be it. You know, what's the big deal? He said, you don't understand. If I, if we get pulled over and I'm driving and I had to go to the back, get out of the car, go to the back to get my wallet, I have a chance of being shot. It, I was floored. Um, knowing that this, the lived experience, having shared some of those things with him, even that um, didn't automatically turn me into an uh, advocate. I think really it was seeing how an innocent black man was actually hunted down on the street and died. And I have been using my voice for nothing, essentially. Um, I've enjoyed having a safe space. You know, I live in the Altadena Pasadena area, which is fairly safe. I took my safety for granted. And I realize what a responsibility I have to make sure other people also enjoy that safe space and enjoy all the, the benefits of running. And that was a true turning point. And I think Alison Desir's article on Outside Magazine was also a, a just, it lit my it fire also. And to go off of that analogy of it, lighting your fire was that the spark that got you into writing more about some of these topics and pitching articles to various publications and using your voice in that way mm -hmm. it was one of the sparks the other spark was a personal experience um so in february of 2021 i was just out for a easy run on Tuesday, on a Tuesday. And I remember that was still peak COVID and a lot of people still wore masks outdoors. I was mm -hmm. just running in my neighborhood. Um, I had a, a cloth mask, but I had it over my chin. So when I saw someone, um, I pulled it up, but then she started screaming at me using slurs, calling me names and I was stunned. I was totally stunned. I, at first I thought maybe she wasn't talking to me. Then I realized it was just me and her. She was triggered by seeing me without a mask, but then I immediately pulled it over my face as I ran past her. And the painful realization was that there were two other women walking by and she, they did not wear masks and she did not use any words on them. She did not scream at them. It was intentionally focused on me. And because she used words to de describe my face and my body, I was like, oh, this is the anti-Asian attack that I've been reading so much about. And it took me a while to really reconcile because I've always seen my community as very diverse, welcoming, and I, all the anti-Asian hate crime that's been reported is from Oakland, New York City. And I thought I'd been in, isolated and insulated from this whole wave of anti-Asian hate. 
And all of a sudden, I realize, holy shit, nobody is immune. Your education doesn't protect you. The car drive,、mm-hmm. your job title doesn't protect you. Your the car drive doesn't protect you. Nothing protects you. Where you live doesn't even protect you. You think by living in a diverse neighborhood you would be protected? No. So that was quite a traumatic experience for me because it was the first time that I was overtly verbally attacked. Um, and took me a little while, and I wrote about it. And through friends,、um, I was able to get my story out on Runner's World last year. And that's when I started. I'm going to do more.、Um, I have always seen myself as a writer. My husband's a writer.、Um, I always thought I had a talent in writing and with words. And I thought this is the time to really put my talent to work, to not only advocate for AAPI runners, but also for all runners of color, and those who do not see themselves as runners, to make running a more welcoming and inclusive space. Aside from that initial article that、mm-hmm. you wrote for Runners World, you went on to write another one for Women's Running after. The tragedy that took place in Atlanta. Yeah.、Um, I don't remember the exact timing on that, but I think that was after you had written your、yes. original article. How did you go about advocating in your own community amongst the group of people that you were already spending time with, just to educate them more that this is happening? This just happened to me. This is happening in other places, and here is how you can help. Prevent it from happening. Yes. So the Atlanta shooting happened in March of last year, and I remember reading the news the night before, and I thought I I could not possibly process this. So I shut everything off. I'm like I can't even think about this. Um, I took my Valerian root <laughs> supplement <laughs> to help me calm my mind and go to sleep.、Um, the next morning, I read the full news:、um, a total of eight people shot and and they died because of this nonsense shooting. And six of them were Asian American women. And how, you know, the the police at the time described it as the shooter having a bad day. I was I went on for an easy run. And I was so angry, and words started coming to me, and I started formulating this open letter, and I wrote it without having a really specific audience in mind, and I wrote it. I posted it on my personal LinkedIn page, and I sent it to a couple friends at work at the Coca-Cola company. Next thing I knew, it was interesting.、Um, The editor in chief from Runner、uh, Women's Running Magazine reached out, and she said, "We would love to reshare your open letter." And our global chief people officer Lisa Chang at the Coca Cola Company, she sent me a message. She said, "Would you please read your open letter at our global town hall?" I was like,、oh, "Really? Yes, I would." <laughs> I had no idea it would go viral like that.、Um, it was simply a way for me to process my. Anger, my frustration, my sadness—all those hard emotions that were just so overwhelming to me—and the only way I knew was 
to how the process was to run and to write. And I put those emotions into words. I had a call of action and I had no idea I would get such a response. So I ended up reading that um, open letter at our employee town hall with thousands of people dialing in from all parts of the world. And it's also funny because I felt like I was I was opening a big concert for some real <laughs> real heroes. And, and I was so worried that my internet might just go out. I was like, please, please let me just, if anything, just let me finish reading this letter. <laughs> um, I was very, I was very shocked by the reception of that letter. And I knew I had something. I knew that by speaking about my pain, my frustration, um, it could light a fire in others, hopefully. What was that response like? And I'm curious if the response was different from your colleagues at the Coca-Cola company when you read that letter to them versus the response you got from, let's just call it the running community when it was published in Women's Running. I, I think the emotional response might be similar mm-hmm. um, because for me, you know, I saw myself in those women. Um, the letter was how uh, in an alternative universe, that could have been me. If I did not come to the U.S. with an education, um, you know, I came to pursue a graduate degree. I had a full ride scholarship. If I didn't have any of that, I would be serving you Chinese food. I would be cutting your nails, polishing your nails. Um, that could have been me and how I have been sitting on my privilege for a long time, not wanting to speak out. And it's time for me to use my voice and use my privilege. I think in corporate America, it's also a call to say, hey, we're here, we're not invisible. There's so much DEI work going on, but interestingly enough, funnily enough, Asian Americans have been traditionally left out of the conversation. The it's rightfully so that conversation has been focused on black and brown people. But what about Asian Americans? What about our indigenous brothers and sisters? We have been left out of that conversation for too long. And I want to be a voice in that good fight. I can't remember exactly when it was, but sometime after you published that open letter, you and I were emailing back and forth because you were starting to write profiles of Asian Americans, which... yes. Correct me if I'm wrong. I I think it was Asian American runners. And I can't remember if it was for Runners World or Women's Running, but ultimately what you wanted to do was take this collection of stories and publish it in a bigger volume. So you had applied for a grant that Brooks was hosting and you ultimately won that grant. When did the idea for that collection of stories come to be? And why did you feel it was important to get those stories out to a wider audience? Mm -hmm. Lack of representation has been a key challenge in this good fight, right? Um, When people think about Asian Americans, a lot of times 
They don't think of us as endurance athletes. They don't think about us as runners or advocates. They think of us as hardworking corporate America citizens, uh, accountants, doctors, attorneys, engineers um, in those quote unquote traditional professions. I would say I'm, I'm part of that traditional profession as well. Um, but it's the our identity is also multifaceted, right? There's also so much diversity within that community. I wanted to feature that. I think the idea came when I saw the Runfulness project opening up. I was like, oh, I'm already thinking about writing all these stories. I might as well put it all together as a book, um, cover as diverse of a population as possible to not only fix, well, I, I, I won't be able to fix that, but to change that lack of representation in media, but also help us, help Asian Americans and Pacific Islander runners to overcome barriers to running, especially for Asian women. You know, we were taught, you gotta protect your skin. You can't look too dark. You can't be too wrinkled. You can't have thighs that rub against each other that's too big. Uh, you can run, but you shouldn't exert yourself too much. All those barriers, I still face the barriers, even with my dad. He thinks I'm crazy for going on a 20-mile run. He's like, it's okay to run three, four miles, but why are you overexerting yourself? That's too much. That sense of moderation, that sense of balance, um, that's such a mental barrier for for more of us, of Asian Americans, getting into the running space. So it's two folds, it's to change the lack of representation. It is also to encourage more AAPI runners to just get into the space and start running and stick to it. What is the status of that project right now? Where are you in the compilation of these stories, many of which have already been published online but fill me in on that yes so i have 10 chapters written and i have written a very detailed book proposal send it to velo press velo press if you're listening please email me back <laughs> um i haven't been able to sign a book contract uh it's been a struggle um it has been amazing working with a team of editors at Women's Running Magazine and, and at Runner's World Magazine. And also right now I'm working on a piece for Trail Runner Magazine. Um, it's been amazing working with these different editors. The challenge is to actually pull all those things together and to get a book out. So, you know, my husband has six published novels and he still faces the same challenge. Um, when he submits like new book proposals, he goes through, he's got, he's treated as a brand new writer all over again. Um, and friends have told me, you have to get a book agent, you have to get an agent. So I am thinking about getting an agent. And if you're listening and you're an agent, please get in touch with me. I need an agent. Um, I think my proposal is you know, the structures laid out uh, have sample chapters, chapters already published, um, just need the next help. And I, I think about, you know, the, the, um, the book, how she, how she's done it or she, how she did it with Molly Hutto, uh, mm -hmm. and Elizabeth, um, Sarah Slattery. Um, that just and came out. She, 
yes, she just came out. Fantastic book. And I have heard them talk about how the book came about, how they were essentially approached uh, to write this book. I was like, oh, I wish I had it that easy. <laughs> so um, I would love to get some help just getting a book contract signed. I can totally self-publish, but it's not the same. You you have to put so much energy marketing that book itself. So, And our mutual friend, Pete, Pete McGill, even him, we were talking about how hard it is to get a book published. And he's had, what, three or four books? And he's such a definitive voice in the running world. I'm like, even you feel like it's hard? Okay, I can't complain. Oh, I mean, this could be a whole <laughs> other podcast conversation on its own. Just the yes. fickleness of the, the publishing world. I mean, Pete's a great example. I mean, his first book, um, I was an editor at Competitor at the time. Mm -hmm. He was writing a lot of training articles for me. And he ended up self-publishing that first book. And I remember Build Your how, Running Body? Yes, Build Your Running Body. And I remember just how um, exhausting of a process that was for him and how expensive of a process that was for him. And that was a very like technical book with a lot yes. of drawings and pictures and yes. all of this stuff. And I mean, he, you know, he made it happen and it did create some other opportunities for him. But again, like, you know, he, for all the work that he's done, the books that he's put out, which are super solid, I mean, all the stuff that he's done online, I mean, it's still, you know, a, a challenge. And I hope there is someone listening to this who is hearing your story and about the work that you're doing and wants to consider giving you a chance. I think it's important for these stories to be told. And I mean, to, to my knowledge with this, like very specific um, subject matter that you are mm -hmm. trying to address, I don't know of anything else out there that's like it. And mm -hmm. I mean, you've told some of these stories online. Other writers have told some of these stories online, but I feel like having a, a permanent volume that, you know, people can pick up for themselves, they can share with others, um, they can recommend reading. It, it's important, um, especially, yes. especially this day and age. Yes. So this is also, this speaks to our invisibility in media in general, right? And even in my world, right, I work with syndicated data. Um, just to share some data, right? Asian Americans are 6.5% of the total US population. We make actually about 20% of the professional workforce, yet there are very, very few Asian um, in the C-suite in corporate America. And my day-to-day -day frustration, I work with a very large um, data, syndicated data provider and they have like demographic filters, right? Um, you can pull data by demographics, by age, by gender, by race, ethnicity. They have white, black, Hispanic, and other. I was like, where's Asian? And it's still a fight, you know? When you're 6% of the population and we don't even get captured in syndicated data, uh, that's an issue and we, it, you know, representation starts in so many different places, right? We have to capture that data in order to make a business case why our market is addressable, why you should think about marketing to Asian Americans because 
you know, this is our spending power. This is how fa- we are the fastest growing demographic in the last 10 years. Um, even in the marketing world, there's such significant lack of representation when it comes to Asian Americans from consumer level being captured in data to senior leadership. So it's very systemic challenge that I'm trying to address. Bringing it back to your book idea that you're working Mm -hmm. on in the stories and chapters that you've written so far, has anything surprised you as you've reported on those and talked to people and heard their stories, some of which I'm going to assume are similar to your own, but I'm interested in maybe what some of the the differences are that you hadn't really anticipated going into the project. I think the diversity startled me as well. Um, Going in, I knew it was going to be a very diverse um, set of topics and, and runners that intentionally built it that way. But just to see how different our experiences have been, uh, me as an immigrant, I had no idea what it was like to actually grow up in America, to be a minority, to feel like you want to be white, but then never quite there. Um, and to wrestle with this idea that we Asian Americans can both be benefit can also benefit from racism and also be the victim of racism to see people struggle with that notion, right? Um, We're so used to that binary thinking. And I've seen throughout my work that people wrestle with this idea, like, you know, it can be both. And to see how diverse these runners have been, you know, Phil Shin, you have interviewed him on your podcast. He's fantastic. Um, he's a great example of that. Um, and I have also written about this runner, Newton Wen, who is a blind runner, you know, went to Berkeley, um, doing his PhD at Caltech now. And he came in third at the SEM, which is a pair runner. Um, he, he was this, he came in third in the para-runner division. Um, I believe it was in 2018 or 2019. Um, Just to understand his journey and the language that he speaks at home and the daily struggle that he has as a person with disability, um, it's incredible. I'm constantly in awe of how resilient our community has been and also daunted by all the challenges that we face as a community. The last bit of your advocacy work that I'm aware of, and you could certainly tell me about more of it if I'm if I'm missing something, is what you're doing through Bras for Girls. Yes. And that's not an organization that I'm familiar with, but tell me about your role there and how that came to be. Bras for Girls was started by a bunch of fierce women at Wazell and Sarah Lesko, my friend, uh, she is a key founder in that process. And 
so much love for her, so much respect for her. Um, so the Breast for Girls was started as a program within Wazao in 2017. It was based on a study out of a university in the UK that shows um, one of the key barriers to girls in getting into sports and being in sports when they go through puberty is lack of access to bras. And there were other studies showing, you know, people in leader, women in leadership, actually 80% of them have played organized sports. So a piece of bra, a bra is not just a bra, it's actually an enablement for you to access any sports, organized sports, and to stay in that organized sports. Um, we, and we have been talking about the benefits of running in, in the last hour, right? I, I feel like, Every child, every girl deserves to experience that, to have that opportunity. Um, so far, we have given over 17,000 brats. And, and the big goal in the future is that we give away a million brats a year. Um, last year, Sarah Lesko successfully filed for a independent 501c nonprofit organization status for Bras for Girls. Um, so we want to honor the the root um, and our sponsor so far of which is Wazelle, and we also want to start taking donations from other brands. So if you have extra inventory, which most brands would just do as like sales, right? Um, if you want to give it away and Bras for Girls would be a great organization to support. And as individual runners, you can always buy a into sports bra from Wazelle. That would uh, allow us to, to have one. So you buy one and Wazelle would give one to Bras for Girls. Where can people learn more about this program and see the different ways that they can get involved or contribute? Uh, Brasforgirls.org. So it's a, the website has just been launched uh, a few weeks ago and we are taking donations online. You can also write a check. Um, so here's the thing. If I think about who lacks access to bras, it is mostly people from marginalized communities, right? It is people, um, the study from the, the uh, university in the UK has shown that girls with larger breasts are more likely to um, cite lack of bra support as a way of, as a barrier to, to sports. So it is, you know, people from marginalized communities, it's also girls larger in size that really need that support. Um, so I see this as another way of advocacy is making sure our next generation has that right access that I have taken for granted so far. I think the work that you're doing with Broads for Girls through your writing in your local community is, is just phenomenal and admirable. And I I want to recognize you for that because it, it is making a difference. I'm interested in how that looks for you moving forward as you've continued to make this a uh, more important part of what you do through this lens of running. Yes. 
And I, I would love to also give uh, Jordan Marie Daniel a shout out. Um, you probably know her. She is mm -hmm. an indigenous runner. She's a huge activist. She has put together a team of about 30 of us who we, we all do our own advocacy work, but we would check in with each other every month. It's a collective called Running With Purpose. And I've learned so much of other people's advocacy work from her. And it's just been such a blessing to feel like I not only I'm not alone doing advocacy work. There are so many more and to learn from how they do it. That's been amazing, too. And Jordan has just been such a personal mentor to me. So um, it's just it, it's I feel so fortunate to be in the space and to receive so much support. And it's now my time to give it back. When you step back from it all and you look at all of these things you're involved with now and the work you're doing and the impact you're having, and you rewind all the way back to the very beginning of when you first put on those running shoes and went out onto the path in Redondo Beach. I mean, does it just give you pause um, to think that you have been on that journey, that you started in this, this one place, just doing something for yourself um, and now, you are having this incredibly wide impact in your community where you live in Southern California. You're certainly still pursuing your own goals as a runner, but you are also giving voice to people who don't have it. Um, you're also creating opportunities for people who otherwise, you know, wouldn't have them. Like what, what does that do for you when you look back on it all? Thank you for mentioning that because sometimes you don't think about it, right? <laughs> you don't think about how far along you've come. Um, I think I've certainly, if I look back, I would say I'm, I'm proud of who I have become today. I think I'm a lot more self-aware, a lot less self-conscious. Um, I think, you know, by focusing on issues larger than me, by focusing on a community, building a community up, that gives me a lot of purpose. And, you know, by having the right platform like yours, by having the platform of just Runner's World and Women's Running Magazine and Trail Runner Magazine is, is helps me getting the message out and hopefully inspire more people to get on this journey with me because social change takes so long. It's decades centuries and we need more people and I was also talking to a mentor um, she she is a senior leader at the coca-cola company and she I I look at her as my queen <laughs> she's amazing um, I essentially asked her I said how do you not get burned out um, there's so there's just lack of progress everywhere you look at and she told me she said Jinghuan don't look at policy change as a way of your success. Don't look at those external things. Think about how many minds you're going to change, how many allies you're going to create in the journey. She said, that's why I'm still here. That almost made me cry. You know, deep in my heart, I feel like I'm still this person searching for meaning, searching for belonging. Um, and I'm still just getting there. 
That's really beautiful. And I think a big takeaway from that for all of us listening to this is to keep searching for that. I think it's when you feel like you've arrived somewhere that you can get complacent and you stop and you aren't really making real progress, not just measurable progress, but just progress in general, but by, you know, just being process focused, you know, in that way and thinking about, you know, the number of people's lives that you're changing along the way, which can often be measured. I mean, that's what's making the the real difference. That's what's really important. Yes. And your work too, giving people a voice, having a big, broad platform that you're still building and having increasingly diverse voices on your platform. I'm grateful to you too. Well, thank you. Uh, last question, which is one mm -hmm. that I like to ask of many of my guests, but what is exciting you, Jingwan, in running or as a runner right now? I think the high school running scene is uh, just shocking. <laughs> I feel like every other weekend, there's some kid in Newberry Park <laughs> breaking a record. It's just crazy how competitive it's been. And, you know, my son is uh, in, in track and field. He's a lot more competitive in, on the long jump side than running. But he run a 61 second 400 meter and he's Ooh. solidly mid-pack. He's mid-pack. Not competitive at all. And then this is also what he said to me. He said, Mom, I realize you're not that fast, but then you can hold a seven minute mile for a long time. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> to have that perspective, to constantly feel like, oh, I got to be on my toes. The next generation is coming up. That gets me very excited. Yeah, I will I will second that. Uh, and it's not just Newbury Park either, even though oh their crew gets all the attention. If you zoom <laughs> out like nationwide, I mean, I think back to when I was in high school, um, you know, a little over 20 years ago. It's, it's really like head spinning. Um, just how how fast people are um, and just how much more competitive high school running is getting, but generally just how much more excitement there is mm -hmm. around it. And I yes. think that's a good thing for the health of the sport. And I think beyond just the, you know, whatever that means for like the future of American distance running as you have like young, fast kids getting into it, the fact that there are just more kids participating in it and getting into it at a younger age and like we've talked about in this conversation, learning things about themselves, forming community, bonds with their teammates, getting those, you know, life lessons which transcend, you know, beyond running. Um, that gives me hope. I think that's a really, you know, encouraging thing. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah. these kids are just running like so, so fast these days too. And that is, that is mind blowing. I It's mind boggling. Well, I think it's, I think it's similar to what you described within your group, Pasadena Pacers. You started and they were like, <laughs> seriously, there were like, what, four or five Boston qualifiers, and now there are several dozen of them. And I think the yeah. same sort of thing is happening at the, the high school level now. You see people around you who, you know, are running fast, and you say, well, why not me? Um, and, you know, then you're more willing to take a risk to see if you can do it, and then you do it, and you gain confidence, and, you know, there's a definitely a domino effect to that. Um, yeah. You know, so I think it's, you know, not too dissimilar to what 
you know you experience as a as a runner yourself and again like yeah the the speed at which people do these things like you know you as a member of Pasadena Pacers versus these like very elite high school kids is certainly like very different but I think the you know the process is definitely the the same and I think that's one of the most beautiful things about running yes and the other thing that excites me is just how people have been using running as a platform for advocacy as well that's been very inspiring for me to see anywhere between making sure the trail is accessible to people with disabilities to getting more black and brown runners out in the trails i think that's all very exciting to me yeah and i feel like that shift has really been noticeable over the last year or so and Mm -hmm. i think and hope that it will continue to gain momentum moving forward because I do think running is a vehicle and, mm-hmm. you know, running is a vehicle for inclusiveness. It is a vehicle for showing people what's possible, you know, for themselves. And and I think in, in that particular way that you just described, I mean, the more of that that we can see, I think the better off this greater community that we talked about earlier in this conversation is is going to be the healthier it's going to be, you know, in the long run, no pun intended. Yes, yes, we're in for the long run. Well, Xinguan, I have really enjoyed this conversation. It was great to be able to actually sit down and talk to you. Uh, I do enjoy our email exchanges, and I hope those will continue yes, moving they will. forward. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining me on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you, Mario. Okay, that's it for this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. Also, a big thank you to both New Balance and the Wineshine Half Marathon and 3.9 Miler for making this episode possible. If you're looking for a workhorse to run most of your miles in, look no further than the Fresh Foam X 1080 V12. This shoe has the perfect blend of cushioning and responsiveness. It's lightweight, it transitions smoothly, it has the most streamlined fit to accommodate a wide variety of foot types, and it holds up to heavy mileage week in and week out. The Fresh Foam X 1080 V12 is available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your local run specialty retail store. The inaugural Wineshine Half Marathon and 3.9 Miler, which starts and finishes at the Silverado Resort and Spa in Napa, will be held on July 16th, 2022. Cool mornings, great running conditions. Registration is now open at wineshinehalfmarathon.org. Enter the code MARIO when you check out for $15 off your registration. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He's produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. Also, thank you to my right-hand man, Chris Douglas, for handling sponsorship sales and various other duties, and Jeffrey Stern for managing the AM Shakeout social media accounts. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys help keep things running smoothly. Last thing, if you're digging this podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And in it, you'll get a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to lately that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.